Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Cam. And this is Translating ADHD. This week, we are going to revisit a metaphor that we introduced in episodes 10 and 11. And our goal is two parts. Number one, some of you aren't entirely clear on the concepts that we present in those episodes. And we use that language so much in subsequent episodes, including recent episodes, that we want to clarify what those concepts mean for those of you that aren't quite catching on to Cam's high metaphorical language. And trust me, sometimes he loses me too. So it's okay. For those of you who don't speak metaphor quite as well as Cam does, this episode is for you. But it's also for listeners who have maybe caught on to the show later and haven't started at the beginning. We're noticing that now that we are almost 60 episodes in here, that people aren't necessarily starting at the beginning. And that's okay too, but we don't want to lose you in the language that we're using. We want you to know what we mean when we say terms like Mount Rainier or the lunch counter or the valleys. So we're going to re-examine this metaphor and here's how we're going to do it. I'm actually going to articulate the metaphor this time. And Cam is going to talk about his journey to discovering the big idea generator and the failure to complete, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So as we go along with the metaphor, he's going to share his own experience in terms of why this metaphor highlights the journey that we're trying to take every one of our coaching clients on. Cam, do you have more to add before we dive in? I don't. I, I will say I think it's one of our most brilliant moves is that you're doing this and not me. <laughs> Brilliance. We are brilliant. This is a brilliant moment. I just wanted to insert that. <laughs> well, thank you, Cam. Sure. But the metaphor wouldn't be there if you didn't articulate it first. And this is why we make such a great team. One of our reviewers said, sometimes I have to catch you when you're about to trip over your metaphorical skis. And that's okay, because most of the time, your metaphor is really powerful and really helpful here. So let's talk about the metaphor first. And I'm going to include in the show notes a picture that Cam drew of this metaphor that we included in the original episodes. I'm still waiting for one of these amazing graphic artists, cartoonists to like run with our picture. I'm just, I'm like, just, you know, you know who you are out there. <laughs> There's a soft ask. <laughs> so the metaphor starts with Mount Rainier. And Cam, last week after we recorded, you said something really interesting about why you chose Mount Rainier. And that is that most people will walk up to the base of Mount Rainier, take a picture and leave. That's all they do. Because if you actually want to climb Mount Rainier, you need to be an experienced climber. You have to register so that if you get lost up on the mountain, they know that you're up there. And you have to go with someone who knows the terrain and knows what they're doing. So it's not an easy climb. It's something people spend years of their life preparing to be able to do. And that ties really well into coaching. Coaching, the process of creating change with ADHD, is not an easy climb. 
it's not something that happens overnight. When I take on a new client, I tell them if they're not prepared to work for me for at least six months, then they shouldn't hire me because the process of change takes time. It takes training. It takes learning how to look at your experience differently. So we've got Mount Rainier. We're not going to talk about what's at the top just yet. Let's start down at the bottom. So we talk about the valleys a lot, being down in effect. So these are the valleys below Mount Rainier. And Cam, I see two things happening in the valleys. Number one is this is that unconscious incompetence, meaning as ADHD people, we know that we can't just, we know that we don't do what we know we ought to do. We've maybe even read a lot of the behavior-based literature. We've tried setting up systems. We've tried setting alarms and reminders and using visual timers, but it doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere because we don't yet know what's really going on that's getting in the way. Like everyone else, like most of the ADHD literature out there, we are looking at our own behavior and we're trying to create change based on the behavior and only the behavior. The second thing is when we're down in the valleys, that's also where we often find ourselves in the limbic system, in the emotional brain that can really color our experiences. And when we're down in effect and things aren't going well for us, can color our experiences in a negative way. This is that all or nothing thinking. When things are going well, we feel okay and we feel like we have it together and maybe this time it's going to stick. And then when it doesn't, well, I'm a failure. And all the other failures come in and snowball and paint this picture that we cannot be successful. Do you agree with that description, Cam? I do. And I'd like to add a little bit. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. The other reason we pick Mount Rainier is that that kind of apron of dense woods around the mountain is massive. There's a bike ride that you can ride around the base of Rainier and it's a hundred miles. It's an all day ride. And that on one side, you can have a temperate rainforest. And the other side, you can have almost like a desert. That Mount Rainier creates its own weather patterns. And last week, we talked about big brain, fast brain, and the combined of big brain, fast brain. And that, you know, on one side, you've got this presentation of the big brain, inattentive, challenges around activation for task, plethora of ideas, and nowhere to put them, like my own presentation. On another side, out of sight, is this fast brain, where it's chasing the biggest signal, always in action and not really developing a reflective practice. But I really like what you said. It's down in the woods, down in the dark. A lot of it is our emotional experience. We're not just sitting down there waiting for something to happen. Life is happening to us and we're trying to be productive. So we do what we can with what we have. But sometimes it's maladaptive in the sense of creating drama to activate for task. I'm going to go help my friend because that's what I can do. I'm a good friend helper. But then we do people pleasing and we put everyone else's stuff before our own. And that's a real head scratcher. How can I do things for other people that I can't do for myself? That's a unique ADHD presentation. Absolutely, Cam. So now I would like to hear what it was like for you 
down in the valleys. So, you know, this, this goes way back and starting with a happy kid, starting with a happy kid, starting with a confident kid. But as I was going through school, people were pulling ahead of me. There was a gap. It started in fourth grade and it started with writing, Mrs. Forbush. And others could kind of sit down, formulate thoughts, put pen to paper, and come up with a concise paragraph. And oh, you know what Miss Forbush did? What did she do? Well, actually, it wasn't Miss Forbush. She was Miss Urban in third grade. But Miss Urban always gave me an option to do a diorama, a picture. Guess what I did? I opted for the diorama, the picture, the metaphor. And all I had to do was a little tiny description on the back. So I wasn't developing that writing skill. So when I got to Miss Forbush and she demanded that, it wasn't happening. I sat down, there was some kind of a block. So I start making stuff up. Like, well, maybe I don't have it. Maybe I'm not as smart as my sister. Maybe I'm not as smart as my brother. But what we do with ADD is when we don't have answers, we start to make stuff up. And that's the start of the negative self-talk that starts to eat away at that child who was confident, who was pleasant, who was happy. In middle school and going into high school, what I noticed was this gap, this performance gap of how it seemed easier for my peers. And for me, it just wasn't. It was, again, back to last week with that some assembly required. It was like I was given parts, but I was also blindfolded and had to assemble something that I couldn't see. Really well articulated, Cam. And I just got this feeling in the pit of my stomach because this is the story of most of us coming up through the school system. My story is very similar. Many of my clients, most of my clients, have had similar experiences where there's this sort of dissonance where we know that we're smart, but then we start to question it because that's not the message that we're getting and we're not performing as well as we could be if we had the right tools and we don't know why. We don't know why. So when the adults around us are prescribing causes, like if you just tried harder or oh, you're just lazy or you don't care, Smart but lazy was certainly my label all through school. We don't have any other explanations. So we start to believe those stories and internalize them. Right. So, and I want to be really clear is that I had parents who were very supportive. And I had teachers who were very supportive who liked me. But again, it's this sort of, this was back in the late 70s before we really knew a lot about ADHD. And people... When they watch something, it's really fascinating. When something doesn't make sense, they start to fill in the blank. Like you said, it's like, Shelly's smart, but because she can't link together consistent performance, they make up something like lazy or she's not disciplined. She needs more discipline. She needs more practice. She needs to want it more. She's not hungry. That's what I heard, that I wasn't hungry. Yeah. Absolutely, Cam. And I love that you started with childhood, Cam, because that is where the getting stuck in the valleys really starts for so many of us. And for me, 
it was the early 90s, but I was also a girl. And my presentation, even though I have combined type and I had some hyperactive presentation in school, it was never pegged as ADHD. Not once was it even considered. And that's that sort of challenge that still goes on today, where there is a diagnosis gap between boys and girls because of the presentation and also because of how we expect boys to behave versus how we expect girls to behave. So in the interest of time, because I would love to walk all the way through (laughs) the timeline till today, but let's fast forward to what it was like to be down in the valleys before you started to climb Rainier, before you started to do your own understand, own translate work. So I was lucky, I think. My mother, who has a brain much like mine, she would ask me, how's it going in college? And maybe it's a time to take a break, Cam. And I said, no, I need to, I need to stay here. And thank God that Back in the mid-80s, University of Maryland was about $900 a semester, just for the courses, of course, not the room and board. But it was a laboratory where I could sort of figure things out. And many of my friends, it was not an environment modeled for performance, or at least academic performance. (laughs) I got in with a group, and boy, a lot of us did not get through that program. I found a small program, and I loved it. I wasn't very good in the classroom, but I was good in the field, and that was geology. And I could see stuff and imagine what was going on below the surface like no other. So what did I do? I leaned on that. So Robert Brooks, who was a psychologist, talks about islands of competency, and he's a great resource for parents especially. And I really leaned on those islands of competency to get me through, and it took me six years to get my undergraduate degree and really fell into teaching because there were no geology jobs. There was an oil glut and people were looking at asbestos thin sections under a microscope. And I thought, my God, I could never do that. NASA, where I worked as a research assistant in in Greenbelt, Maryland, was not hiring at the time. And that was interesting, but it wasn't the field work that I really enjoyed. So teaching opened up and I taught for 13 years, but I bumped along and kept running into these obstacles that just had no explanation. I'd watch other teachers work hard and deliver these products, the reports, the grades, the lesson plans. And for me, the effort it took was tremendous. We didn't have any kids at the time. My wife was working and in her own graduate program. And so we were kind of both working 11 hours a day. And that's what it took for me, 11 hours. It was all day and then five hours at night. And it was when I got a coach, found a coach, was when things started to change for me. But before that, it was this information about ADHD. To that point, I thought ADHD was about hyperactive kids. I had two kids in a van going down from Baltimore to North Carolina, and their parents decided to give them a medication vacation. And they sat in the back, and I learned what hyperactive impulsive ADHD was because those kids had it and they expressed it. And that's what it was for me. 
And it was at a teacher retreat with a guy named David Parker from UNC who was presenting about ADHD. And he delineated these two types, inattentive and hyperactive impulsive. I looked at that inattentive list and I was sitting in the middle of the room with all these teachers around me. And I was, I just, I blurted it out loud. Oh my God, that's me. Cannot maintain focus, cannot complete, easily distractible. Write down the list, all of them. Bup, 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 bup. That's me. So that learning, it, no one told me. It was a self-discovery thing. I was in a position for that information. If I wasn't in that retreat, if I wasn't a teacher, I may have found another way, but it was sitting there in this learning session that it was this self-recognition. Oh my God. So then I had something. Before I had nothing, it was just, again, all the shit that I was making up in my head. And now I had something. Wow, there's an explanation. And it was so powerful because it externalized it. Wow, there's a reason for all this behavior. And then I could go back to the deep recesses of the valley and put explanation to these experiences. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle starting to pop in and click together. You know, the other thing about Rainier is the reason why we introduced the Rainier model is because of this fundamental breakdown between cause and effect. That's what the Rainier model is all about. Down in the valley, we're at effect. We're at the manifestation. We cannot get to cause. And so I was having a cause moment there. A light went off. Wow, here's something. So what it allowed me to do was it gave me a light to find the path out of my deep valley. And I started walking up and getting some altitude, getting some light. The trees start to thin. I can see things now. I can see patterns, connections. So, Cam, you saw me over here kind of stifling a laugh when you talked about how you first discovered that you have ADHD, because as you know, my story is very similar. I was a working professional organizer sitting in a conference. And I saw Dr. Russell Barkley speak on ADHD and executive function, and it was a three-hour presentation. So he broke down manifestation in each area of executive function. And like you, I was sitting in that room going, shoot, this is me. What do I do with that? I find that that's the experience of so many of our clients, is they find out almost by happenstance or accident, and I don't know about you, Cam, but for me, many of my clients are diagnosed within the last five years because they start to do the walk that you're doing and find that they can only get so far. So why don't you take us back to that walk and let's talk about where it leads? Yeah, it led me to a diagnosis. And this was about 1996. I was about um, well, maybe 97. It was about four or five years into my teaching. and. I was in an area, you know, good thing I was not living in Minot, North Dakota, because, you know, there's certain kind of ADHD research hotspots. And the triangle in North Carolina was one of those areas. I found someone who was, it was an ADHD clinic. It was in Chapel Hill. The guy's name is on the tip of my tongue, and I just cannot remember his name. But I was, I was a pilgrim on a pilgrimage seeking answers. 
And I found a place. I found a place and it was powerful because, again, here was an expert like Russell Barkley. I've seen him speak several times, giving me information that I'd been craving for all my life. For 30 years, I had no understanding of what was going on, no consideration whatsoever. And so, again, the brain naturally goes to the emotional piece, psychological. And ADHD is about this cognitive layer, this executive function breakdown. So this information is coming in, and it's just, again, putting the pieces together for me in a way that had not been put before. But I will say, I thought I was at my destination. Oh, okay, this is this. I take my meds and I'm on my way. And I realized that I was only at a way station. I was only at a a stop along the way as I reflect back now, because it was another nine years until I realized the biggest impact of ADD on me. Nine years. So what's that about? How can it be that I get a diagnosis and I take meds and it gets help and I get a coach and that helps. But then the fundamental learning for me didn't happen for nine years. And that's when I realized that ADHD is a learning challenge in the sense that we have all kinds of learning, but then we set it aside, put it on the side of the road, and we can't find our way back to it. It's taking that learning and synthesizing it and applying it forward. This is the process of positive change. That's why my friends were moving forward and I was not because I would build knowledge. Then I would set it aside. And for lots of reasons, not because of the damn squirrel people, not just because of the squirrel, the forgetful squirrel. There's a forgetfulness, but there's also, again, all these other activities, signals, things that we're chasing. The idea generator. I was in the midst of my own volcano, which was this plethora of ideas. And I thought I had to pick up every single one and do it. That's what my dad did. So I should too. Yeah. So what you're describing here is the process of hiking up to the lunch counter, which we're going to talk about next week in depth, but hiking up to the lunch counter with this new awareness, this understanding of I have ADHD and the ways in which the traditional literature is helpful when you're newly diagnosed, when you have this new understanding. So hiking up again and again, only to slide back down into the valleys, only to end up right back where you started. And as you said, this happens because those of us with ADHD don't naturally reflect on and learn from our lived experience. That is a skill set and a toolbox that takes work and effort to develop, and it takes work and effort over time. So the big idea behind the Rainier model is first do your lunch counter work, do exactly what Cam was doing, because that's where it starts. But instead of losing it, instead of it being this individual task doing lunch counter work or this individual problem or situation, building knowledge over time, building your expertise of your own lived experience so that you can become that climber that is strong enough and skilled enough to go higher. 
So next week, what we'll do is we're going to distinguish the lunch counter. We're going to dig in there because it's so fascinating how so many folks are wanting to understand this thing. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I love that. I love that. And so you're challenging us to really, again, this is why we're talking about this now, is to really bring this to you so you understand it and what it means. So yeah, I was doing lunch counter work. The other thing I want to say is that I just, I want to say that what the Rainier and what we're talking about here, this is additive. This is not to take the place of other methods or interventions or all the work that has been done to date around ADHD. There's some amazing people who are in this industry doing amazing work. And we have come a long way in the last 40 years. But again, we're bringing this as a little bit of a distinguisher and additive and seeing it's necessary and something that is, we're just noticing in our work with our clients is that they get to the lunch counter and they're wanting more and there is more. And so that's our teaser for next week is what's behind that lunch counter? What's above the lunch counter? What's up on the slopes of Rainier? What's at the top? But first, Cam, what's at the lunch counter? Because that is a worthy conversation unto itself, because there's valuable work to be done at the lunch counter. And that's really where it starts as a newly diagnosed person who is trying for the first time to understand their uniquely wired brains. Do you know that translating ADHD, we have a booth at the lunch counter, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) we're there we're at the lunch counter so listeners over the next four episodes including this one today we're going to continue to break down this mount rainier model and we want to know is this deepening your understanding of this metaphor And the language that we so often use in our episodes, because we often refer to the lunch counter, we often refer to the valleys, we refer to all parts of this. So was this helpful? And do you have a better understanding and a deeper understanding of the metaphor than you did before? So to send us feedback on that, you can hit us up at Twitter at TranslatingADHD or on the website TranslatingADHD.com. And if you want to support the show... The two big ways you can do that is number one, leave a rating or review wherever you listen. Reviews help more people find the show. Number two, you can become a patron. Visit the website, translatingadhd.com. Click on the Patreon link in the upper right-hand corner. Become a patron for $5 a month and gain access to our Discord community where we are discussing concepts like this, where we are actually, it's through our Discord community that Cam and I realized that there was a deep need for us to revisit this metaphor and to flesh it out a little bit more and to share our deeper understanding because we have developed learning around this metaphor since the time that we presented it as well. So not only are our listeners doing their own understand, own, translate work in our Discord community. They're also doing a lot of work to help us shape the direction of the show and what has our attention and what we're bringing to you all. So until next week, I'm Shelly. And I'm Cam. And this was Translating ADHD. Thanks for listening. 